0: Hey, everybody. You ready to roll? Sweet. Well, welcome to week three of Blueprint. The uh, first, um, in case you're newer with us, Blueprint is a series we're doing focusing on the basics of Christian faith lived out and how to have an unstuck and uncluttered life, an unstuck and uncluttered spiritual life, and then ultimately, because churches are made up of people, an unstuck and uncluttered church. The first two weeks were on the connections we need to make, these two weeks are on the growth that we want to see, and then in our lives, and then the last two weeks is on service. So it's connect with God, connect with others, grow in our understanding of the gospel and knowledge of the Bible, serve the city, and reach the world. So this is week three. See? Blueprint. One, two, three. <clears throat> um, I if that's too far. One of the realizations that tends to start to happen to people at some point is we begin to realize that we need to grow. Now, you might be saying to me, Nick, that's actually not true. Only 3% of the American population are lifelong learners. And you'd be possibly right, depending on whether or not those studies are any good. Um, But here's—those are just the people—that's not the number of people who know they need to grow. That's just the people who do something about it. Those are not the same thing. Almost all of us recognize on some level that the world is crazy competitive. And that every minute, if you're not catching up, you're somehow falling behind, right? We also know that in most of the failures in our lives, though there may be, have been other contributing factors, we played a pretty significant role in what happened, and we could have not. And so growing would be great. Right? And yet when you look out in the world, there is like a dizzying amount of advice out there about how to get better. Right? The most recent one for me is I'm reading this book by David Allen called Getting Things Done. It's about mastering your workflow, you got a complicated life, boo hoo for you. Well, there's things you can do about it. Do these things, right? And um, it's a book full of advice. And the funny thing about this advice is he tells you straight up, he says, Listen, it's not okay if you do eighty percent of what I'm telling you. You have to do a hundred percent of what I'm telling you. Which is both helpful and, you know, demoralizing (laughs) at the same time, right? But um, here's the problem. Advice sometimes works for techniques that we don't have mastered. So workflow, like I, I was in college for only seven years, and at no point in my education did anybody, whether when I was a business major a teaching major, or a pastoral ministry major? Did anybody think it would be a good idea to give me any sense of how someone could manage a complicated workflow? Because, of course, pastors and business people and teachers have no complications in differentiation in any of their work. Right? But much, much worse than my technique problem and workflow is my human problem that I'm a terrible human being. I'm a little beyond advice, the advice I need is varied and complicated. The transitions that need to take, are happen, take place are legion. And yet, I want to grow. I realize that if I'm going to be the person God wants me to be and be the person I want to be, I have to grow. But it's a little bit dizzying. And here's one of the things that has to happen. We have to get straight again in our head some basics We've got to get back to basics, right? This is a football. This isn't a football. But we have to get back to the basics of—some of you to do that with the Packers, right? Um, So, of what growth is. Because here's the problem. We do not live in a world of growth anymore. We live in a world of mechanization and and optimization. And that, if you apply that to spiritual life, will destroy you it'll just make you angry, cluttered, stuck, upset, stressed out, and you'll be going to your doctor more than you need to. This is an eggplant. I grew this eggplant in my garden. Now that is both a true statement and a ridiculous fiction. Right? It's true in the sense that the sun sets, that's true, right? And you kind of think somebody's pedantic if they're, if they're like, well, you know, technically the Earth is rotating in our perspective and blah, there's no Apollo. and Okay, Captain Obvious, that's great, but the sunset, and it was pretty. That's all I'm saying, right? <laughs> but the only time we tend to attack these sort of like functional fictions is when they kind of offend us. Like the last time you were standing next to a guy and his wife was eight months pregnant, he's like, yeah, we're making a baby right now. And somebody in the group felt like they had to point out, buddy, you're not making a baby, she's making a baby, Right? which isn't actually true either. Like, have you, ever, have you ever heard like a woman who's like eight months prior go like, oh, i am been a little bit busy making a baby here, and everybody like tee-hees? And I just wanna say, and you can't actually say this out loud, but she just wanna say, it's not like you got out your magnifying glass and soldering pencil and are making a baby like someone, you know, wires a motherboard. Your uterus is doing it automatically. You're just tired and cranky. Right? Motherhood is very important. The point is, is that the first lesson every gardener needs to understand is, you don't grow things. You don't grow things, right? Miracles happen. That's what gardening is all about. It's all about the fact that biology, chemistry, and physics just keep happening. You put stuff in the ground, The seed just kind of grows, if it gets wet and warm and whatever, it just kind of, there's a plant, and then it just keeps growing, and then the sun, and then the bees come, and then it's birds and bees and things, and then you've got, before you know it, you've got fruit if you don't screw it up, right? And then you go, like, for example, my kids were picking beans out of, like, super dried beans because I didn't even have enough time this summer to pick the stuff growing in my garden. That's how into it I was. And you know what? Still grew like five, seven hundred pounds of food. <laughs> I worked one day. I put the plants in the ground, right? Because we don't grow things; we cooperate with the miracle of life by cultivating life. When you when you get back to that reality, what you be, you'll begin to realize about your spiritual life is that spiritual life comes from Christ. Spiritual life comes from God that is what's different about the Christian message than any other message Jesus didn't point to advice outside of himself or an enlightenment that he'd found within himself, he pointed literally to himself that he was himself what we needed and that he would give us through his life, death, and resurrection the power of his Holy Spirit he would give us the miracle of spiritual life And then we would participate joyfully and humbly in cultivating it. But we weren't going to be that big a we weren't going to be that big player. And the first thing every Christian forgets is that that's what's happening. Christians start walking around holding up their spiritual fruit and saying, look what I grew. I grew this. Isn't that great? Look how humble I am. Right? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Spiritual life comes from God. Okay, so this morning I want to talk about um, four things that you have got to get straight about spiritual life in order to understand the gospel. The gospel is the message about Jesus, that through his life, death, and resurrection, for your sins, he has made it— made a morally truthful relationship between you and God so that you could have a relationship with God through which God gives you spiritual life, that spiritual life produces in you what God would rightly demand from you. And you embrace it, believe it, trust in it, walk in it, live in it. You just cultivate it. The first of the four things is this. Spiritual life comes from God and is not created by us. Um, This is a huge theme in John's Gospel. All the way through, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to teach us this is um, to record the places where Jesus said, I am life, basically, in varying metaphors. So, for example, in chapter 6, Jesus says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, the metaphor confusion there isn't because John doesn't know what bread is. He, he, listen, I'll, just, I'll guarantee you the Apostle John knew that you couldn't drink bread. Okay? I guarantee it. Here's why. He's not just the bread. The bread is a metaphor for life. That is, that bread as food is life-giving. Just as water and wine is life-giving. And he himself is that, Right? Next passage in John 8 where he says, Jesus spoke again to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, right? So he's demonstrating that although the metaphor that Jesus is using is changing, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the gate, I am the shepherd, I am the whatever, that what tracks through all of it is what he's pointing to is that in him being that himself, he is the spiritual life that produces growth. John 10, I am the gate. Whoever comes through me will be saved. He will come in and go out, that is, he'll have life. He'll be living a life and find pasture. That is, what's pasture for animals? It's what they need. It's food and water and what they need to live. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. If the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, then he's arguing that implicitly, the reason he lays down his life for the sheep is so that the sheep can live, right? You're very bright, okay. And then in 11, it says, Jesus says, I am, meaning in himself, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. So you keep moving through new pictures, but it's still the same thing. The, the actual spiritual life that creates growth in human beings comes from Jesus himself. Not from Jesus' advice, not from Jesus' moral demands, but from the power of God residing in Jesus himself. Right? In John 15 it says this. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, then he will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. A little lesson on pre-viticulture. So the way people cultivate grapes is you plant it, right? And then there's two wires, if you've ever been to a vineyard. And it grows up straight, and then you cultivate it to put branches out on each wire. So you have four sets. Do the grapes grow on the vine? No, they do not. Grapes do not grow on the vine. They grow on the branches. You cut them back, and they regrow every year, and on those branches grows the fruit, not the vine itself. But the vine produces the branches, and it produces the life. It brings the sap out of the ground. It pushes it out. It grows the branches themselves, and those produce grapes. And what Jesus is saying is the Father in his providential actions in your life is going to cut you up. There is cutting back that has to take place. It's going to hurt It's going to be difficult, but it has a purpose and a reason, and he's going to do it. And if you remain not angry at the providential work of the Father, but connected to the life-giving power of the Son, if you remain in the vine, that pruning, when combined with the life of Christ, produces branches, produces fruit, produces beauty, and apart from that vine, you can't do anything. That is, The life comes from the vine, right? Now, um, Tim Keller gave an example one time. He said, listen, if you are a gardener, you can be a really, really, really good gardener in terms of being able to prune and cultivate and stuff. But he said, ultimately, what it comes down to is what do you plant? If you don't plant the right thing, you got a problem, right? So my kids opened up all those dead beans that we didn't pick in time, and they saved these so they wouldn't have to pay the $2 to plant beans for next year, right? And then I've collected these rocks and twigs and dead leaves. See, this has more diversity, right? Now, here's the thing. You can plant both of these, and you can water them, and you can buy pruning shears to be ready to prune what they grow, but there's a big difference, you see? And and, in one sense, this is Jesus, this would be Jesus' implicit claim about why following him really is different. Because people say, well, religions are all the same. They have the same spiritual disciplines, and they're looking for the same ethical outcomes. Uh-huh. And you can have two people who want a garden and grow beans, and they're ready to do the same cultivation, and they both want beans, and they each plant different things. You're going to get massively different outcomes. Even though a lot of the ideas are very similar, there has to be a source. Jesus is saying, whatever you think that practices are, and whatever you're after— The thing that actually matters more than anything else is the source of actual life. It has to produce life. And it's not you, it has to come, Jesus claims. He's saying it has to come from Him. All right. That's clever. Another way, if you like, to have another metaphor of this is in John's, one of John's last epistles in the, the book of 1 John. It's just only four or five pages. But he starts getting to the end of the book, and he starts explaining why there would be a trans, transformation in us. And it's not because we're performing things because Jesus gave us good moral advice. In each case, he says, here's what happens. It's when somebody is, and the metaphor uses, born of God. Uh, that's, it's, just a, it's just a birthing metaphor rather than an agricultural metaphor. It's giving life. It's that people live like Jesus when they've been changed by Jesus from the inside out because of the spiritual power that he gives. And we have to get that one straight. The second thing is this. That access to spiritual life comes to us in the form of news. Actual spiritual life comes to us in the form of news. The word gospel means good news. Lots of people love to focus on the first word and they forget about the second one. Yes, it's good news, but it's news, and news is a fundamentally different kind of thing than other things. In um, these three passages, um, it talks about specifically what the gospel is. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that this is the gospel I preached to you, and it's by this gospel you're saved. And he says specifically, it is this, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, and they ap- he appeared to many people. That is, that the gospel, in its most simplified form, is Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection was for your sins. And that his burial and his resurrection demonstrates the importance, the necessity, and the accomplishment of that. In um, Romans, Paul talks about the significance of that, because he says in the gospel, in Christ's death and resurrection for you, What that produces in someone who believes is a righteousness or a setting right with God that is revealed when somebody believes that message, right? He says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And Jesus said... When he was talking about what was going to happen after he died, he said, you must be on your guard, meaning the people who would believe in him. He said, you have to be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings to witness to them. Right? Notice a news-telling word there, witness. Witness. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now the point of that is not so that missionaries and pastors could have job security that everybody should get yelled at at least once a week. The the idea of that is preached just simply means heralded or declared or said. That is, that through witnessing and preaching, that is the telling to other people. This message, the gospel, has to go out to everybody in the entire planet, and that is the main thing in Jesus' mind that is happening between his ascension and his return. That this thing he calls the gospel, the news, that in his death and resurrection, we are set right with God, and God's spiritual life can come into us, change us from the inside out, and make us a people for himself, that everyone has to know. Why? Because it is the most significant news that there is. The clearest contrast I I can talk talk about that I think is very important is to recognize that news is, is logically contrasted with advice. News is something that you are told happened and is already done. This happened. Oh. Advice is that there is something that has to be done, and you're being told how to do it. But ultimately, you have to do it, right? David Allen can tell me what to do, but who has to do it? Me. I have to perform better in workflow if I want the success of whatever on earth, good work, not a nervous breakdown, I guess, right? But news is something that you hear, it's already happened, it has significance for you, But you don't have to perform anything You still have to There's still a right response to it Right? Like the old picture from um, VJ Day Of the sailor kissing the Well, they were actually dating She wasn't a nurse She was a dental hygienist And they got married a year later But it's still romantic And it is the right reaction to We just won a war now, you can imagine it would have been very different if what came back that day is the Nazis have finally taken over all of Europe and Britain. They're in boats. They're coming over here. The entire American army has been defeated. You're going to have to fight for your lives. Here's what we think you should do news advice. And see, people talk as though they understand that Christianity is news. But, they, but what happens is they slip into that gardener fallacy of, oh, I grew this. Well, if you grew that, then you performed. If you performed, you have to think in terms of performance. Once you think in terms of performance, you're the new legalist. You see, there's a lot of people who either you or your parents or you've heard stories about it and you didn't even experience it yourself, but we all somehow implicitly hate the old legalistic church that you may have never even been to, but you imagine. You saw it in a movie or something. It's like this church where some overweight white guy who looks kind of old, like tells people they're living wrong and they better straighten up and the way is narrow and you better shave and don't drink smoke or two or go with girls who do and like, you know what I mean? It's that kind of, you know? And, you know, well, you're doing it wrong, and don't come back to church until you wear a belt or something. I don't know, you know? And we're like, oh, that's just—that's religion. I hate religion. That's organized religion. That's stupid, right? But what's the foundational and fundamental principle of that? Why is it wrong? Is it because the moral statements weren't true? Well, a bunch of them were made up, but a lot of the moral statements were true. The difference was is that the whole thing functioned on performance, and now what have we done? We got rid of that kind of church, and we started a new church where you come to church and you get nine principles every week of advice, right? It's the same thing, don't you see? It's, it's the same thing, except what do we say instead of like, you're, you're being wicked. See, I have to even—the stereotype is so bad, I have to say it in a southern accent, Right? What do we say instead of, you're being wicked? What's the, like, the judgmental thing that we can say? It's totally judgmental. It's completely legalistic. It's totally intolerant. But we can say it because it's the right vocabulary. Well, that ain't healthy. Except we say it in a nice Madison voice. Well, that's not healthy, is it? well, I read a study about that parenting model, and didn't you hear in CNN they, CNN they said this, and, well, you should do at least this much. Per, yeah. And there's always some story that you read that somebody else didn't read that you can judge them about, you know, because it'll be true for at least two more months before, you know, some other study overturns it and the press doesn't report it, right? And so there's this kind of, like, constant, like, we're, there's, so you come and there's 19 principles every minute, and you're supposed to do them all so that you can live optimally, so that you can be healthy. And it's in everything And now biology and medicine has merged with morality and religion And all of it is, let me tell you all the things you have to do to optimize your life It's why when you go to the doctor's office They ask you questions about stuff that could happen to you One out of two million Well, are you doing this? And you're like, like, that's like one out of twelve million Well, you know, it's important The problem is optimization and things not being optimally healthy and the old legalism is the same thing with a different accent. It has modified language. It's the same stuff. The hope for your life to go well is that you perform it properly according to this set of principles and the advice that I'm now going to give you. And I will psychologize the Bible, and I will quote studies so that you believe in it instead of that you believe in the Bible because it's God's word. And we'll we all be just as legalistic, but because we use tolerance language and we put it in a metaphor of health rather than of morality, it'll go over fine. It's the same thing. And all along, Jesus has been saying, you get your spiritual life from me. If you don't... The thing you need, I want to give you. You don't optimize advice. You don't beat people over the heads and, and try to judge and guilt them into it or pride them into it. You just... You connect yourself to the vine. You eat the spiritual bread. You, you see the spiritual light and walk in its light. You walk behind the spiritual shepherd. You go through the spiritual gate. You... It's news, it's not advice. In order to understand the gospel, we have to constantly be coaching ourselves in what the gospel is not. The gospel is a gift, not a wage, right? It's something somebody freely gives you you don't deserve. It's not something you earn that they have to pay out. Whether that's in the sense of like, hey, I did the job, here's your bill, you need to pay it. Or whether it's the like, well, I'm a person and I deserve all these things and you should give them to me. Whether it's an entitlement mindset, Or a performance mindset that makes you feel like you deserve something from God. You don't deserve anything from God, Scripture teaches all the way through, but God generously gives you as a gift the thing you need. And you didn't earn it, and you aren't entitled to it. Or that the gospel is a promise, not a job to do. The biblical language is it's um, faith versus works. But if you're having faith, that that presumes an object, right? If you're cultivating something, what are you cultivating? A plant, right? If you're— If you're putting your faith in something, it hasn't happened, you believe it's going to happen, what are you by definition doing? You're believing a promise. God has told you, he said, this will happen. Do this, trust this, believe that. And faith is saying, I believe that. What would it look like to trust? Or by atonement rather than affirmation. There are, it's a totally different motivational structure if you believe somebody has made you right when you weren't right, as opposed to wanting something just—someone to, to just to affirm you that you are okay. Right? It's why I don't think when somebody—when somebody says, oh, sorry, you should be like, oh, it's no big deal. I, I don't think that's helpful. Uh, imagine, like, you were supposed to do security rounds. That was your job. You, you were like the non-security guard security guard—I actually did this job— where you go around and you look at all the lights and make sure they're green and not red, right? And let's say you walked past one, and it actually flooded the first floor of this building and cost, created $18 million in damage, okay? And you go into your boss's office, and you're like, oh man, I'm kind of sorry about that, right? Like, he is not gonna go, you know what? It's no big deal. Just a little water. Just a little H2O. I mean, if you took all the space out of those cells, it's nothing. You know, those, those atoms, you know, it's 99% nothing. So, I mean, what even happened, right? Well, here's your only hope, right? Your only hope is that the insurance company interposes on your behalf, right? That's That's your only hope, that the insurance company interposes $18 million so that you can be free of the damage that you caused. And if and when that happens, are you set right? Yes. In one sense, is it similar to somebody saying, oh, it's no big deal, whatever? As opposed, it is, but you see how it, it does something totally different. In one case, if somebody's like, oh, it's no big deal, it's just a little water, what does that mean? You're being told you are above reality. That's what you're being told. You did something objectively, morally wrong, and somebody goes, eh, no big deal. Yeah, I'm going to suspend reality to affirm you. It's cool, whatever. It's not cool. Reality dictates that you're, I mean, it's just, it's, it's insanity, right? But we, we, we act like this is true and we affirm each other that it is true. It's not true and it's not okay. What we need is somebody to interpose and make things right because they're not right. And when somebody does that, do you know what it produces? It doesn't produce pride and it doesn't produce fear because you see, if somebody says, oh, it's okay, is it really okay? Probably not. It's probably not okay. It's like the person you did something to them and they're like, "Oh, it's fine. Cool. It's, it's it's forgotten. Whatever. It's it's cool." And then they like they slowly stop speaking to you. Right? It's not okay. And so when somebody says, "Oh, it's no big deal, whatever." Affirmation, you're affirmed. It's fine. What does that produce? It produces fear and pride. I'm above reality or maybe it's not okay. But you see when somebody actually interposes and makes things right and then offers pardon. It doesn't produce fear and pride. The fear is gone because you know the restoration has actually happened. Right? If you're the security guard, the the building people can't come to be like, where's our 18 million? You know they got their 18 million. They can't do a thing to you. you got your 18 million. They paid it out. What What are you trying to do? You know you're okay. So the fear is gone, and you're still an idiot. So the pride is gone. Right? But what actually does happen and what floods in is joy, that weight goes off your shoulders thankfulness that somebody interposed on your behalf you'll be the one person in america who loves insurance companies you know (laughs) is actually thankful for the service that they provide right and then you'll be humbled by the fact that you're an enormous failure at your job and it might change your character to take what you do more seriously do you see how all of those things are good when you are atoned for and you are interposed for it It has a completely different effect. Not only is it much more truthful and real, but the effect on who you are is all positive as opposed to the other, which is false, and the results are all negative. They're all unhealthy. Do you get the joke? Okay. And that's because it's something that has been done that is it's news, not something that has to be done. Okay, the third is that the gospel produces growth through spiritual life. You see, people can come to the place after saying, okay, wait, Nick, if you're just saying Jesus just gives it, like it just comes from Jesus, you trust in him, and it just comes in the spiritual life God gives you, and that produces life, and then all you do is participate in the cultivation of that life in the ways that scripture directs us. Like, that really sounds like everybody's kind of off the hook, like, it sounds like people can be idiots and be like, well, I have Jesus inside of me, and that's somehow okay, right? If you believe that's necessarily true, then what it also means is the only motivation— human motivations you believe in are fear and pride. Because what you're saying is, if you take away all coercion, people can't live beautifully. You're saying people only live beautifully through coercion. That is, you are good enough pride or you're not good enough fear. The idea that somebody can, from the inside, receive a kind of life that creates a desire for true nobility, so that they don't have to be coerced anymore and are willing to go to the ends of the earth and sacrifice everything that they have for something that they believe is good, true, and beautiful, because it is in the heart of God and it is fundamentally great. It just means you're just too cynical about that. You you don't have any capacity to believe it. A, you're wrong, and B, it's very small-minded. And what the gospel ultimately does is there's a certain level on which that is left there as kind of a safety net. I mean, Jesus says, look, if you don't abide in me, you're going to get cut off and burned in that fire and that's not going to work. Like, there's a certain five feet on the ground safety net of that. But all of the motivational structure of Christian faith exists above that. That is... When the spiritual life of Jesus comes into you, when you see the good, the truth, and the beauty of Christ, and when you follow him as shepherd, when you walk into the light that he gives, when you eat the bread of life, it does something inside of you. It puts a thirst for nobility into you that didn't exist before in a way that Jesus lays out that is self-sacrificial and courageous and great, and you want to live into it. Not every minute, there's all kinds of sins that you're still wanting to do, but there's a drive for that that isn't there before, and that is what produces growth. Anytime a person who claims to be a Christian is utilizing the five-feet-off-the-floor bottom-level motivation of fear and pride to help get them to do the right spiritual thing, it's never gonna last, it's never gonna get you anywhere, it's not useful growth. It might keep you from actually hitting the floor. It might just barely keep you in the game, but it's not going to produce Christ-likeness. When did Jesus say people would be filled with righteousness? Do you remember? There's a place in the Bible that says, if you do this, you will be filled with righteousness. Do you remember what he says? It's this. He says, those who—it's in the Beatitudes. Those who—blessed are those who— Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You see, it's when Christ's spiritual life motivates you from the inside, to, you, you hunger and you thirst to live beautifully, justly, rightly, towards all people, towards God, towards all of creation, in yourself. When you long for that, you thirst for it, Jesus says, You'll be filled. Because that's when that spiritual life is bubbling up inside of you and it's unleashed in beauty. And you will find what you're looking for. But you see how that's a gospel centered, Christ centered, life of divine motivation, not fear and pride? Through the gospel, God produces in us, through spiritual life, what we think salvation should require from us. Either. Either health optimization or the old moral legalism, whatever those are trying to pull out of us or coerce us into, the life of Jesus produces from the inside out. God gives us the very thing he requires from us, and that's the only way for God to be loving towards people who are radical, moral, and spiritual failures like us. Think about it this way. Imagine. Imagine, like, a young guy who's 18-year-old who's been in trouble with the law, and he has, like, a parole officer, and he's supposed to check in, right? And he just—he's failing, right? He's supposed to be across town. He's not there. He's not going to make his parole appointment. He's going to get parole violated. He's going back to prison. And this cop pulls up and recognizes him. He gets out He he's like, where's your parole officer? What are you doing? Like, and like, he's got it. Like, he's flat got it. Okay, it's 25 minutes till his appointment. It's nine miles away. He doesn't have a car. There's no bus that's going to get there. This guy is screwed. And it is the cop's job to take that seriously. He's made bad choices. He needs to check in. It's supposed to be a corrective system, right? It's his job to enforce some legal justice, even if functionally it's a fiction, right? But on some level— what if generosity was interposed? Like, he doesn't have the right to be like, oh, you know, it was no big deal. But he could give him a ride, right? Like, what if he's like, oh, man, you're 25 minutes till your thing. You get, get in the car. We got to roll. Right? And he, he gets in the car. He, dr- he drives him to the appointment. Now, did he undermine justice? No. I mean, he might have affirmed a bad behavior, but it's why not take a risk? That's what generosity is. Right? And so he does it. And hopefully that self-sacrifice and the ex- Giving somebody grace will create a motivation of, wait, at least this guy's not against me, and maybe that, and maybe we can, and, right? Grace can interpose. God can produce in us even what he should require of us. But if we reject that, it's no good to say, how dare you require something of me that I can't do? That's not going to work. The idea that God wants us to live out his image in the life that he's given for us, and he demands it of us, and even threatens to punish us eternally for rejecting it, it will not do to say, your standard was so high that was ridiculous, because the gospel's answer is, I gave you everything I required of you. I gave you the righteousness you required. I gave you the power that you required. I gave you the direction you required. I gave you everything that you required to say that what I demanded of you is impossible and that I'm not generous doesn't work. Because he could produce in us and will produce in us what he demands of us. And what we, we, we in our less guarded moments, would demand of other people in our self-righteousness. You can see this in those verses um, that talk about being born of God, right? I mean, John doesn't say, hey, you gotta get people to do stuff. You gotta make them live healthier. You gotta make them, you know, sit up and walk straight. He says, listen, he says, no one who is actually born of God, has the life of God really in them, is gonna continue to just sin. Right? That doesn't mean sin ever. In that context, and I don't have time to argue why this is true right now. But it means just like keep doing whatever they were doing before, however they were doing it. He's like, if you have the spiritual life of Jesus, you just can't do that. The idea that, like, if we don't coerce people, they won't be good. If they are born of God, they will change. If you are born of God, you will change. Right? He says, because here's why. He says, because God's seed remains in him, back to the agriculture metaphor, he can't go on sinning. Why? Because he's been born of God. Don't you see? A few verses later, he says, for anyone born of God overcomes the world. That is, in this context, it is the sinful tendencies of the culture that we're saturated in. We can overcome that. And anybody who's born of God can overcome that, he says. He says, this is the victory that has overcome the world. And then what does he say? Because we obey advice or because we live out the moral commandments of coercion? No, he says, because of faith, even our faith. What is he saying? The victory comes to us through believing. That is, we don't produce the spiritual life. Jesus does. We just receive the seed, and we live in its cultivation. The last thing is the spiritual life comes by faith and trust. Because here's the thing. You might be like, okay, so then what the heck are we supposed to do, Nick? I mean, we come to church every week. Like, it seems like there's a lot of activity. Like, I mean, if all we do is receive the spiritual life of God, I mean, isn't that a little, like— I don't know, I mean, like, what, what is, what is our job then? I mean, you said we, we cultivate, right? Yeah. Christian cultivation is essentially asking, what would faith and trust look like in this situation? If I were to actually trust the real Jesus, and if I were actually to believe him and act like I believe him, what would that look like in this situation? That's all Christian godliness ever is. And the reason we do things like read the Bible is because if you ask yourself the question, what would faith, what would trusting Jesus look like, you kind of have to know something about Jesus, right? So now it's not like, well, if you don't read your Bible, God's not going to like you because he's shallow like that. It's like, oh wait, so my whole, whole, this whole thing I'm doing is trusting Jesus. I should probably learn about Jesus. Where can we find out about Jesus? Oh, in Scripture. Maybe I should read that, right? Or maybe I should listen to preaching about the scriptures in which Jesus is talked about Or maybe I should get into a mentoring relationship with somebody who knows a lot about Jesus And can help me reason through what it looks like to trust Jesus Or, 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 right? The best way to understand how to respond to the gospel Is to just simply look at how the Bible describes the gospel What does the Bible say the gospel is, right? The gospel is, well, gospel means news The the Bible says it's by grace that it it is a free gift on the basis of God's generosity. It's a gift. If we're supposed to have faith in something, it's by definition a promise. If we have faith, we don't have it, but we believe it's going to happen. That's what a promise is, right? So the gospel is a promise. It actually says in Romans what the gospel is when it says, Abraham believed God's promise and it was credited to him as righteousness. Oh, there's that righteousness that comes from God. How did Abraham get it? He believed God's promise, right? And it's restitution and atonement, right? It says that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus interposed himself into our moral debt and spiritual death, right? And it's rescue. Okay, so now the question is, how would we, how do you respond to those things? You see, once you get straight what the gospel is, once you understand the gospel, what we're doing starts getting really clear, and there's a lot of other stuff and other feelings and stresses that have imposed themselves on your Christian life that you can get rid of. You don't need them. You can get unstuck and uncluttered. You don't need the guilt for you because you haven't read your Bible in three days. It doesn't even say in the Bible you're supposed to read your Bible every day. That's not a thing. People just do it because it's great. If the Bible's the Word of God, why not read it every day, right? But what happens? People start reading it, and they're like, oh, this is kind of good. And then they get busy or something, they're like, oh, I didn't read the Bible. God probably hates my guts. (laughs) What? That's—but you see, here's the thing. Once you slide into, I grew this, you immediately start thinking in terms of performance. That means you'll start thinking about your performance, and everything becomes about your faith, not God's life. And if you spend most of your time thinking about your faith, of course you're going to be depressed. Your faith stinks. Right? I mean, come on. Let's be honest. I'm the pastor. <laughs> it's terrible, right? The reason why we are in crisis is not because our faith is good, it's because Christ generously and freely gives life to all. That's why Jesus was like, look, if you, if you can, like, just a mustard seed of faith, like, really small, like, arugula. Like, if you can be, like, if there, a little bit of faith, and I'll even give it to you. Like, I will give it to you, and if you can get then that's good. We're good. Right? Do you see what? What's happening in that language use? I mean, just think about it for a second. He's like, you're terrible. Like, this is, I just want, can you just go yes. If you could just say yes, that'll be great. We can, it's just a li- little bit of authenticity, yes. That's it, right? Once you recognize that, it's really easy to work your way through, right? What do you do with news? You hear it, you believe it, you're thankful and happy about it. If your girlfriend's right there and there's a guy with a picture, you kiss her, right? If, it's a, if, if somebody gives you a gift, what do you do with a gift, right? You don't say, well, I guess I'm going to have to do a lot for you, right? No, if, they, if you assume they gave you the gift for the right reason, they want you to have it, and they want you to enjoy it. So you open it, you receive it, and you open it, and then you enjoy it. And the more joy and thankfulness that you show, the more happiness you bring the gift giver. Which is, that's, that's, if you have a responsibility, that's what your responsibility is. Right? That's why you kick your children when they open something on Christmas and they're like, oh, this is what I wanted. Right? You should. I mean, don't kick them in the face. But like, you should be like, shut your mouth. Put, put on that sweater. Do you know how long it takes to knit that? You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's the way, okay. And then what do you do with a promise? Somebody says, I'm going to do this for you. What do you do? You don't go, no, I believe it when I see it. Right? I mean, like, either you believe it or you don't. Right? Will you marry me? I'm going to be—that means I'm going to be with you forever. I'm going to give my life to you. We're going to have a life together. I'm going to stay with you forever. I'm going to—I'm going to—I'm going to—I'm going I'm to—right? Well, you either say yes or no. And if you say yes, then you live in light of that promise. You show them day in and day out that you believe it, right? Same thing with restitution and atonement. When somebody makes you right, when they interpose themselves and wipe out your debt or they make something right that was wrong, you acknowledge it. You say, you're right. I did that. I needed you to do that for me. Thank you so much for doing it. It humbles me. It helps me. I have so much joy. Thank you so much. You enjoy the relationship with the person who helped you. And then with a rescue, you just you, you quit kicking and screaming, right? I mean, the worst thing you try to help somebody. I, mean, I don't know who's been a lifeguard, but like, it's just the, the first thing they teach you in lifeguarding is like, you know, it'd be great if you could just swim up to somebody and help them. That would be great. But you know what they teach you in lifeguarding? Like the first lesson is? Alright, they're going to try to kill you. Okay? When you swim up to somebody who's like distressed, they are going to try to kill you. They're going to grab you and push you under to get themselves up and you may have to knock them out. I was taught in lifeguarding how to elbow somebody in the face so that you could help them. Luckily, I worked at a Children's camp and so they were too scrawny for that, but like I mean it was kind of like you got to pit them and then he, and then they taught you how to get behind them and put them in a chokehold so that you could help them right if you're being rescued you, here, here, here's what you do you just don't make it harder you let you let yourself be rescued right and so when you think about what What does it mean for me to understand the gospel? Here's what it means. You need spiritual life. Spiritual life comes directly from God. It comes on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a gift, it's a promise, it's news, it's restitution, it's rescue. Your job is to hear it and believe it, receive it and be open to it, trust it, and acknowledge it and embrace it and be thankful for it, and don't resist it. That's your job, and it's not impressive. You are never going to be spiritually impressive, okay, from God's perspective, at least. Um, And we'll, we'll end with this. So one of the ways to recognize how serious Jesus was about this is that Jesus only ever required two religious actions. Now, he gave a lot of moral commands. In fact, Jesus spoke more about how we should treat each other and how we should act towards God than anybody else. I mean, like, well, not than anybody else, but he did a lot of that. But there's very few places where he's like, you should do this religiously. Like, here's a spiritual thing. You need to do it. But there's two that we call ordinances, which is just a nice way of saying you got ordered to do that, you know? Like somebody's telling you what to do. It's an order. Let's call it an ordinance, because when you change the tense, it sounds more passive, you know? There's two words. One is called baptism, and the other is called the Lord's Supper. You're like, oh, i got to do all this religious stuff. Okay, so here's what baptism is. Baptism is when you allow yourself to be dunked by somebody else momentarily in a harmless liquid. Okay, that's baptism. So, good, great job. Who's been baptized? Who's been baptized? You are so awesome! Like, well, give each other a hand, right? I mean, Yeah! Pulling yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps, you're going to launch into heaven like Apollo 13. I mean, you are amazing. It's awesome. You let somebody else dunk you momentarily in a harmless liquid. I mean, you are so spiritually powerful, right? And what's the other ordinance that Jesus, Jesus demanded of us? You will do this, right? You'll do it often, and you'll do it until I return. It's communion, right? Here's how difficult this is. You eat food with other people. This <laughs> is <laughs> well, I mean, this mind-blowing exertion of human effort where you like lift up a tiny piece of bread and you chew it momentarily and then you even have something to wash it down with. I mean, like this is the demands of personal performance that Jesus puts upon all people. And you will be under the difficult and heavy yoke of that weight crushing you For the rest of your life I mean the idea that like nearly monthly You would have to pick up a piece of bread And raise it up to your face And masticate repeatedly This is impossible to conceive of Right? Do you see the point Jesus is making? Do you still really see it? Because see, you're stuck doing these like super quiet times and like, I'm going to give all this money and I did raising my children perfect and surely Jesus is loving me more and it's all bull. It's just crazy. All Jesus ever said is, I give it to you. Here's how you can receive it. Get dunked. Eat a piece of bread and remember in that moment, believe in that moment, embrace in that moment that you believe I'm giving you life. And then when you, and then when you get out of the water and you keep eating the bread, remember that bread and wine gives life and I give you that life and I'm going to get, I gave it to you because my body was broken, my blood was poured out. Bread and wine, nourish I will give you all the spiritual life you need From now on till when I come back This is what I give you Everything Believe that, embrace it And then just ask yourself What would it look like to believe this Today If If we understood that We Christians, if we Christians Understood the gospel we would be nearly infinitely more godly, nearly effortlessly. We would not be constantly racked with guilt and anxiety in our spiritual lives. We would not be under the deadening idol of optimization. And we would live in a morally beautiful way. We would live in a mo- much more healthy way because we would be at peace. And we would be cultivating The powerful spiritual life that Jesus would be growing in us. So, here's how we're going to end the service. We're going to do a communion altar call. Okay? So, normally we pass out communion. There's a couple things we want to do today. One is, the bread is bigger because I want you to have to chew it. Okay? The Lord's Supper should be chewed, because Jesus gives you life, and that is one of the things you're supposed to remember when you come to communion. The second thing is is that Jesus' body, like this loaf of bread, was torn apart for you. He interposed himself for you. It doesn't actually do you any good if you don't receive it. And if you've never received it, you can do it right now, right? You can, you can come up here, and you can grab a piece of bread that represents the broken body of Jesus that was broken for you. And one of these cups that represents his blood poured out for you. And you can recognize that this is nourishment, and the, and the, the metaphor of the, of the physical nourishment represents the spiritual life Jesus is offering you. And there'll be people standing by these tables. I'd really encourage you for you to tell that person this is your first time, and just let them pray for you, and then receive it. And if you um, are already Christian, You just do the exact same thing. (laughs) Just the exact same thing as everybody else. You take the bread, you take the cup, and you remember the Lord's death. You remember what the gospel really is, and you let all of that other junk go. You push the clutter off the cliff. You look to the cross itself. You receive the peace that comes from it, and you walk out of here a free man or woman. And then you just ask yourself, what's it going to look like to trust that Jesus today? How do I cooperate with the seed and the growth that Jesus is creating in me? How do I do that? And we'll talk more about that next week and, you know, until I die, probably. Weekly, approximately. So I'll pray. The worship band is going to play. Some music, some worship songs. You sing, worship to God because all we're doing is thanking and being joyful, right? Sing, come up and receive this. Use the next ten or twelve minutes to love Jesus and go ahead and like silence the the um, the first drive or thing things on your phone to tell you how the Packers are doing before you get out of here because it's gonna be the same when you find out twenty minutes from now. Okay, (laughs) so just take ten minutes to worship the God of the universe and then we'll go and just. Sort of worship Aaron for the rest of the day, okay? I'm just kidding about that last bit. All right, let's pray. Father, please help us to focus on what the gospel is, the good news of Jesus. And please free us from the stuck, cluttered, advice, performance, nonsense that we constantly allow our hearts to, to, to fall into. Help us to see the purity that spiritual life comes from you. You have interposed Jesus for us. We can trust you and we can be changed and different and free and new. And we pr- I pray that right now you would be helping people receive that, whether it's for the first time or for the 150, whatever time. Help us to overcome the emotional things holding us back and help us to walk with you. Holy Spirit, please come in and do something in us right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Why don't we stand together and then, um, when you're ready...